This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. On today's show, we spend the hour with the celebrated and prolific Canadian labor historian, Brian Palmer, who helps us understand what is happening in Ottawa, the capital. The so-called Freedom Convoy of Truckers is holding Ottawa hostage, clogging the streets of the city, as well as the U.S.-Canadian border crossings all along the border from New Brunswick to British Columbia. Brian calls this Canada's alt-right freedom rage. While they say they're protesting state mandates related to the pandemic, their target is the liberal government of Justin Trudeau. They're a well-funded movement with parallels to the alt-right in the United States, what Brian calls the lumpen petty bourgeoisie doing its revolting thing. We get the story from Brian Palmer when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. And today we're going to talk about the so-called Freedom Convoy in Canada and what has happened to it. After more than, I think, two weeks or more of what looks like pretty chaotic protest that's blocked Ottawa, the capital, and has stifled trade and showcased alarming weaponry in otherwise quiet Canadian neighborhoods and communities this week, The Canadian government pushed back with Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau invoking the country's Emergencies Act, enabling new financial restrictions on the protest and signaling uh, harsh new penalties against anyone involved. From what I understand, there were 100 arrested on Friday and then they promised they were going to remove the truck. So we will find out if that did happen. And I think from most reports, it looks like this is welcomed by most Canadians, but here in this country, right-wing supporters like Tucker Carlson have portrayed the convoy as a working-class rebellion, and Trudeau's response has been treated as enacting martial law, and even Elon Musk tweeted and then famously deleted a meme comparing Trudeau to Adolf Hitler. So we're really fortunate to have the preeminent Canadian labor historian, Brian Palmer, with us to decipher and analyze just what is going on. I haven't had Brian on for a long time. He is, as I mentioned, a very prolific and preeminent Canadian historian of both labor and the left. He's published many books, among them the just-released award-winning second volume, of his biography of the wobbly early communist Trotskyist labor leader, James Cannon. It's called James Cannon and the Emergence of Trotskyism in the United States, 1928 to 1938. That just came out. And he also has Revolutionary Teamsters, the Minneapolis Trucker Strikes of 1934. He's co-author of Toronto's Poor Rebellious History. That's in 2016. And among many others, including a 2000 book we talked about right here, called Cultures of Darkness, Night Travels in the History of Transgression. Brian's Professor Emeritus at Trent University in Ontario. Brian, welcome back to the show. Oh, it's wonderful to be here. I'm such a great subject, and you really gave it a great name, too. I should just say, Brian has just published an article. I think it's called the Canada's Alt-Right Freedom Rage, but he also called it the, what is it, Brian? I didn't coin that, but it, on Twitter by progressives, it's been labeled the Flu Trucks Clan. Flu Trucks Clan. It looks greater on paper somehow. But let's just begin. So if you could give us a kind of overview of this Freedom Convoy protest, which is clearly very militant. Give us the sort of parameter of what actually happened in terms of mobilization, disruption, repression, and then we'll move into more detailed questions. Okay. Well, a few months ago, it was all over Twitter and various social media forums that there was going to be a, quote, freedom convoy that was going to proceed, starting from the West, really. And it was hailed as a truckers mobilization. And truckers were leading the charge against really a whole series of pandemic-related restrictions, mandates, passport violations, and above all, for truckers themselves, dictates that came from both sides of the border, from the United States and Canada, that truckers had to be vaccinated and present vaccination passports, etc. You know, it was understandable and actually 
legitimate that there would be a lot of protest around how the pandemic's handled in capitalist states like the United States and Canada. And certainly there have been incursions upon freedom that all of us have lived with. It's a big debate about what that means and how one relates to that, et cetera, et cetera. These truckers were, however, mobilizing very much against all the mandates. And they they were well organized. At first, they managed to mobilize through GoFundMe something like $10 million worth of support. GoSendMe, which is a different evangelical Christian and right-wing organization, has seen a similar amount of money raised by them. And now they've raised money through Bitcoin and cryptocurrency kind of um, mechanisms. So very Um, well financed. They are very well financed and not just Canadian. The figures vary according to which source you're looking at, but certainly 50% of the funding is coming from offshore. And much of that, the vast bulk is coming from the United States. So one Um, question would be to just sort of, how did they come about to actually clog the Capitol? Like what were the steps? Well, the steps are that these, these convoys of trucks proceeded across the country and came largely from the West, and they picked up steam as they rolled into Ontario. They were clogging highways, 401, um, not in any stopped purpose, but just their volume. And they picked up uh, supporters along the way, and then they proceeded into Ottawa, and it's been three weeks plus ago that this happened. I believe this is the 22nd or 23rd day of the occupying of the downtown Ottawa core and where the where the Canadian Parliament buildings are. It's our kind of, it's the equivalent of Washington's Capitol building that they have basically surrounded and extended into neighborhoods that are actually residential neighborhoods around their small side streets. Probably in the end, upwards of 400 vehicles of which the large, you know, 18-wheeler tractor trailer rigs are the the symbol of the movement and the, and the largest expression of it. But probably in terms of the vehicles that clogged the core of Ottawa, their number would probably, I would say the trucks would be half of that. And there were SUVs and campers and RVs and various other kinds of vehicles. Now, they came in and they took over Ottawa. And then there were related protests, particularly at border crossings. Mm that those started about a week after the Ottawa protests. And they actually closed the Ambassador Bridge with a similar convoy of trucks and pickup trucks and, you know, SUVs and other vehicles for a week. And that bridge, that Ambassador Bridge connecting Detroit and Windsor, is the largest trade artery in Canada and the United States' trade, supposedly one of the largest in the world. On the order of $300 million worth of goods crosses that bridge every day. And they closed that for a week, which, of course, you know, this really is what precipitated the federal government into action. Capital began to scream about this. Large corporations began to scream. They were claiming they were going to have to close plants from Arkansas to Ontario, particularly in the auto sector, where so much depends on just-in-time delivery of particular parts. And a lot of workers were going to be thrown out of work. And some were placed on short time and actually, you know, lost wages. And that backed up, of course, truckers coming, trying to get into Canada from the United States. Uh, There were people stuck there. They had to detour to Sarnia, which is, you know, you go north into Michigan and then cross at Sarnia. But it, it added an extra, you know, seven to eight hours or more onto truckers' trips. The point about these truckers, and the, and the reason I wrote the article on the lump and petty bourgeoisie doing right. this revolting thing was because there is, particularly I found in Europe and even in the United States, a great deal of misconception about the social basis of this movement. And that was going to be tru- my next question. <laughs> you you yes. say truckers and you think if this is a working class protest. Mm. In actual fact, this is not a working class protest. And it is not a protest of, for instance, that involves very many oppressed minorities, peoples of color. Uh, And I should say that, for instance, in Ontario, in the trucking industry, much of which is unorganized, but the vast bulk of truckers in Ontario 
are South Asian. Wow. And those people are very, very, very rarely, if at all, represented in this truckers' protest. Of the unionized truckers that exist in Canada, organized in, say, the, you know, the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. That was going to be my question, too. They are opposed to this protest. Interesting. They, Can I just interrupt you for one thing and just yep. sort of go back for a second on that? Because, first of all, you just raised the question of those who are unionized and those who are not. And like here in the United States, truckers are traditionally Teamsters. But I wondered if in Canada, I'm assuming it's the same sort of trajectory as in the United States when trucking was deregulated in 1980 and truckers who did have a decent standard of living all of a sudden had to become independent contractors, which meant that they were responsible for their rig, the insurance, the gas. They got no benefits. And uh, looking at how truckers are today, especially port truckers, they usually are people of color and Latino immigrants, and their average wage in the U.S. is $28,000. That's the port truckers, and they have no benefits. It's a little better nationwide. But I just wondered if that's you know similar to Canada. Is that because you talk a lot about that in your article? And I just because Canada does have a social safety net that we don't. I just wondered, you know, is it a similar story? I think it's very similar. And I think that is the reason why 85% of the truckers in Ontario, uh, most of vast bulk of which would be unorganized, mm. are outside the parameters of both unions and this protest. Now, the unionized truckers have, as I said, expressed their hostility to this movement. The South Asian truckers are not involved in any meaningful sense with it. And on both of, to the best that I can ascertain from just anecdotal evidence, both unionized truckers and the non-unionized sector, many of which are immigrant workers, are vaccinated and do not oppose the vaccine mandates. Wow. Okay. So for them, it's an interesting juxtaposition. For them, it's a freedom to work, which is being opposed by the freedom riders, as we, you know, you could sarcastically call them, who are saying, you know, we're going to shut down the society if these mandates are not lifted. And that's the other thing is, is that while they are very adept, this movement, at hijacking symbols and discontents, and the leadership of this movement, which is not truckers for the most part, is, is an alt-right leadership. It is very hardcore right. One of the people arrested yesterday, Pat King, is a very noted white supremacist, anti-Semite who has been involved in right-wing causes. The leading figurehead of the movement, and he is a trucker, Pat King, the leading force behind the movement, one might argue, is a woman named Tamara Licht, who is a far-right politician who has a deep commitment to Western separatism. So in other words, separating the West of Canada from the yes, rest, you exactly. mean? That, that, yes, and this, this builds on longstanding uh, antagonism of elements in the West to the Trudeau leadership, going back to Pierre and now transferred very much to Justin. There are elements in this movement that are ex-military, ex-security state, ex-RCMP. Um, one of the leading figures, again, who gave himself up for arrest yesterday, again, a man named Daniel Bulford, was an ex-RCMP, Royal Canadian Mounted Police for your American audience, who worked in Trudeau's security detail and lost his job for refusing to go along with the vaccination protocols. And there's ex-military there, and there is extreme right wing groups who I wouldn't say are in the leadership, but who are very much involved in the more activist base. A number of them, 13, were arrested at an Alberta border crossing. And they were arrested. They are affiliated with a, a paramilitary group whose leader is in Nova Scotia. They're called, I might get the name wrong, they're called the Diagonal Movement. Okay, And they believe in a <clears throat> diagonal white state extending from Alaska to Florida. And my guess is, I don't know enough about them, 
and nobody does because it just popped up. It's like a lot of these fringe, you know, paramilitary groups, but their name suggests to me that they want this diagonal white state stretching from Alaska to Florida. And what do you eliminate when you eliminate that? You eliminate California and New York. Diagonal. That's amazing. We've never, I've never heard about it. No, no, I had never heard about it either. And I know a bit about these paramilitary groups, but they were arrested and they are charged with a far more serious charge than the bulk of the arrestees so far. They're charged with conspiracy to commit murder. And did they actually try to kill someone? No, but my guess is that the RCMP had security surveillance of them because it was supposedly a Mountie or Mounties that they were threatening to kill. When I say all that, I'd also put a caveat of questioning over this, because we know how, (laughs) I mean, we're not like the alt-right with their conspiracy theories, but we know on the left enough about how the state and its forces of repression will use in moments of crisis for it almost any mechanism to eliminate people they don't want to involve. Now, there were multiple weapons on these people when they were arrested, and, you know, as I say, the 170 so far arrestees that have happened over the last two days are almost all charged with fairly minor charges of either mischief, obstruct police officer, or perhaps counseling mischief, which is what the charge on many of the leading elements. Is. One of the things that you know you say and you highlight in your article, and you just talked about how this is like 22 days on, is the kind of ambivalence of the authorities at first in responding to the movements, almost as if they're trying to gauge popular support before they move in. And then, you know, as you mentioned, it started to stifle trade and it started to threaten work all the way down to, I think you said, Arkansas or Kansas. Uh, So that gets a little bit more serious. But you also then compare them somewhat or liken them to the January 6th protesters here on the far right. So maybe you could just talk a little bit about that and we can move in. You know, we're kind of going all around, but like, you know, how much support there is. But first, you see them very much as a kind of relative of the January 6th protesters here or insurrectionists? Yeah, I never used the word insurrection since I don't believe it was that. Yeah. Uh, it was a, it was a riot directed from the top. It's very <laughs> rare in American history that you see a president actually encouraging a riot. But, you know, uh, that's what it was. This is, in, in my view, in some senses, the Canadian equivalent of this. I start the article off, I think, by saying that everything in Canada you know, everything that happens in the United States comes to Canada, but a tad more politely. And that's sort of what it is. Because in spite of the fact that they are pinning this freedom message on issues of mandates, their original manifesto of this convoy was that they were proceeding to Ottawa to bring the government down. That is, the elected government, whether you like it or not, of Justin Trudeau and the Liberals, they hate Trudeau, this movement. The sign of choice in this movement is Trudeau. And that pretty much sums up the politics of this movement. Now, their manifesto said that they wanted to proceed to Ottawa and they were going to stay there until all mandates and all pandemic restrictions were removed, number one. And you need to know that in Canada, those mandates are not generally federal mandates. They're provincial. So, you know, targeting the Ottawa federal government to bring these down when most of the mandates are provincially imposed is a political, you know, non-starter. Secondly, they wanted to dissolve parliament and they wanted parliament to be composed of the governor general, who's the Queen's representative in Canada, which is this. So they're royalists? Yeah. Well, I doubt they're actually serious royalists, but they prefer the Queen to Justin Trudeau for sure. The Senate, which is an appointed and fairly conservative body, and members of some of of the Unity Party, which is a Western separatist, provincially based organization. So they could you just you know are they like you mentioned this and you started out by saying that one of the lead members is actually a trucker, but so many of them aren't. So those putting forward these kinds of demands, does that come from the truckers or from the their support? You know these right-wing affiliates, let's say? 
Yeah, I think it comes from the, I'd say, the alt-right element and ex-military, like this guy, Daniel Bulford, who was an ex-RCMP. I think these people are the more, if you could call it that, intellectual, you know, wing of the movement. (laughs) A guy named Pat King is definitely a trucker and a trucker's organizer. So there are, you know, there's certainly truckers involved in this movement. And also, as the movement coalesced in Ottawa, there were numbers of people who did come into the movement who didn't drive trucks in and leave them there, but walked in. Mm. Uh, And same at Windsor. So there are some proletarian elements in there. There are working class elements in there. There are nurses who've, who've lost their jobs because they've refused to be vaccinated. There are unemployed people, for sure. But the reason that I say that it's not a working class movement is because its leadership is fundamentally not working class. Its orientation is not working class. It does not have a a class struggle kind of political program. It has instead all of the touchstones of the far right. In fact, it is very much like the kind of Tea Party, you know, organizations in the U.S. years ago at its base, which did contain some working class elements. Sure. Um, And. The issue that you asked me about, which is a very important issue and which I have not been addressing and I've wandered around, is what happened originally? How did these people come in? And what I say in the article is they were welcomed in the same way that the the protesters January 6th were welcomed, very much from the pinnacle of state power. Now, Trudeau wasn't the equivalent of Trump in the sense that, you know, Trump was in the seat of power. And in the highest position in the land, welcoming these people in and saying, we're going to march to the Capitol. That's not what Trudeau was, in fact, the mirror image of that. He was who they were you know, rallying against. He was the legitimate elected representative of the Democratic state. But the conservatives, who are the official opposition, have very much become the, you know, the, the Tory part. The conservatives in Canada have a long history of having a, a pink Tory, a red Tory tinge. That's gone. And that's supposedly what distinguishes us, Canada, from the U.S. We've got that pink Tory tinge. Well, it's gone. They've become Trumpites, many of them. There's still a there's a contest going on. And in the middle of this convoy, the leader of the Conservative Party, a man named Aaron O'Toole, who had become the, the leader of the Conservative Party on the promise that he would campaign and politicize from the far right, but then as soon as we had an election, decided that's not saleable in Canada. I have to govern from the middle. So I'm actually going to support gay marriage and I'm going to support all these things that this movement, the freedom movement, would abhor. Mm. Right. So he got actually kicked out of being the conservative leader in the midst of this trucker's convoy. One of the reasons was because he wishy washy on whether he would meet with them. And take pictures, you know, photo ops with them. And that really pissed off some of the far right elements in the Conservative Party. They kicked him out. There's an interim leader now, a woman from Manitoba who is just an awful, you know, she's photographed in a mega cap and just a real harridan. And so the Tories welcomed them in. And Justin Trudeau and the Liberals did virtually nothing. And the police forces in Ottawa did virtually nothing. Right. In fact, when the convoy was approaching Ottawa, you know, kind of the electric signs you see on highways, it's often about weather conditions or this lane closed. This way convoy. Oh, my God. <laughs> so and, openly welcoming them. And the, the guy who's now running, uh, who's now the chief of police, who was the assistant deputy chief of police at, at the time, made a statement that, well, He'd talked to the truckers and they'd, they said that they were just going to come in and it'd be a peaceful protest and then they'd leave. Well, their websites and all their, you know, they had trucks coming from Nova Scotia that had on their windshield from Nova Scotia here for the long haul. And they they'd made statements in their manifesto that they were staying until everything, all the mandates were down and parliament was dissolved. So they were allowed to come in. And then then the chaos started. Because once they got there, you know, I describe it as a Woodstock of the alt-right in the article. I mean, they, they, they were setting up camp. They were roasting pigs, you know, in the middle of streets. They set up bouncy castles for their children that they brought with them. They had hot tubs. In their trucks? <laughs> they, they just put out in the street. and they were. There's a stadium they built 
They had disc jockeys blaring music, and they were doing their trucker horns 24 hours a day, which residents of Ottawa described as kind of sonic, a, a sonic assault. You couldn't sleep. There were people with a, autistic children who were going crazy Wow! in the midst of this. They were very upset and disturbed. Right. And everybody was maneuvering to make something of this. Trudeau thought, this is a fringe element. I'll let it go. They'll create havoc and it'll rub off on the conservatives who are his opposition in Ottawa federally and who also govern Ontario. Okay, where Ottawa's located. Meanwhile, Ford, the populist conservative premier in Ontario, he thinks, okay, I'm just going to stay out of it and rub off on Trudeau. And the police, honestly, I don't know what they were doing, except I think significant numbers of the police actually have support these people. And not all of them. And and they are now they're arresting them. It's the same as what happened in Washington. There were some cops in Washington who welcomed those protesters. You know that there were cops who were off duty from other places who came to that protest and then ended up in some senses fighting the cops. So all that you see on now on the mainstream MSNBC and CNN is the horrible attacks on the police. And, you know, you see the picture of the guy being squeezed and stuff. Mm. But some of those cops welcomed them in. And the, so, the, yeah, no, I mean, this is really fascinating. You've given, a, you know, the sort of political football in a way that this became. And I'm really curious because we think of Canada, you know, as far more civilized than the United States, at least in its political discourse and even in its parliamentary system. And here you see that the Tory party looks like it was sort of weighing whether or not they should identify themselves with this and then did, you're saying, I think. And so, you know, it's it's kind of like a test of strength of the Trump style movement in Canada. And we've certainly there's even on uh, Comedy Central there, there's been great segments where they are wearing the equivalent of MAGA hats for Canada. It's make North America great, I think. I'm not quite sure. But the question there is, like, how do you see you've mentioned that residents in the community didn't like it. So. Given that the Tories, you know, it's a question, I guess, of this, whether this politics is taking hold and how much popular support there is for this kind of politics in Canada. Well, it's certainly taking hold, whether or not it's a majority or even approaching the majority that it obviously is in the United States is an entirely different question. I mean, there is a minority, a strong minority of this alt-right Trumpite, you know, mobilization, whatever you want to call it. And it has taken over a wing, certainly, of the Conservative Party in Canada, which is very different than the, quote, progressive conservatives, as they used to be called, who governed in Canada for for many decades. You know, my own view is that I'm not sure it's saleable in Canada politically. But then I didn't think Trump was electable either. Very few of us did. And we know what happened. So you do have to be vigilant. The problem is it is just such a mess now in terms of where you go. And part of the problem is in Canada, and I would say this globally, well, I won't speak globally, but certainly it's the case in my view in the United States as well as Canada, is that the labor movement has been eviscerated and domesticated to a certain extent and is not able at this point to provide a leadership of alternative. I mean, what you'd want right now is a very strong labor movement that could actually counter this. And in fact, on the Sunday night before the Emergency Act was proposed and very much fed up with the police inactivity. And at that point, I think two and a half weeks of chaos in Ottawa, rank and file militants in the union movement and people in the community and social movements gathered by the thousands to block truckers coming in, not just truckers, but anyone who they thought was coming in, they block, they, they gathered at entry points. There's only so many that you can get into the downtown core from the highways in, in Ottawa. They took a direct action and they turned trucks back. They seized their fuel because they were bringing in, you know, canisters of, of fuel and diesel oil and things to, to keep the trucks running. 
they seized those and they turned them back and they seized all their outside banners that uh, promoted this freedom convoy. And the cops tried to get them to stop. In other words, the cops were welcoming them. In essence, strike breaking against a direct action that would have allowed, you know, more trucks, more problems to go into the center of the city. And that was a reflection of two things, just the irate nature of people in Ottawa, but also the fact that it was union militants and community members, but not the trade union leadership that did this. Now, the trade union leadership, you know, kind of wants to bask in the sunlight that we're with all Canadians and we want this to end. But they've done nothing and and issued no real statements of opposition. One of the things that you say in your article, and you mentioned here at the top, I guess, Brian Palmer, is that uh, these are the lumpen petty bourgeoisie. And I think you describe them not as like truckers who are at the low end of the scale, but the guy in the $200,000 rig. And this is very similar to what's come out about the January 6th protesters. They're not the discontented white working class that the media would have us believe is the whole basis of Trump's support. But in fact, the disaffected small business owners and others who somehow feel that based on racism, we have to say that their America has been taken from them. And so Canada, as well as a country of immigrants, and I'm just wondering, like, you know, this takes it away from the union leadership question, and maybe we'll go back to it. But just in terms of that white supremacy part of it and the anti-immigrant Part of it, is that something that you would say is very much in the minds of the truckers or is it more discontent with, as you said in the beginning, any kind of mandate about vaccinations and and COVID in general that they feel have harmed their, you know, whatever. And, and, And you could also say for truckers that supply chain problems have been a difficulty for them. And that's, you know, of course, this contributes to it somewhat, but maybe you could just kind of address all of those issues. Yeah, I I think race is a fundamental issue. But I would also say that the movement, the numbers of people who congregated at the bridge, uh, Ambassador Bridge in Windsor, in downtown Ottawa, it's a motley crew. Mm -hmm. And what the alt-right leadership, which I think is animated in very strong measure by racism and white supremacy. What they have been very effective in doing is, in some senses, hijacking the resentments of various layers of Canadian society and in masking their animosity to immigrants and and white supremacy with latching that on to this freedom cause of anti-vaccination and anti-mandates. So there were swastikas. There was at least one Confederate flag that was flying in Ottawa. There is a plethora, which you have seen nobody really mention, of anti-communist placards and Eastern European immigrants, who are many of them are small businessmen, right? Eastern European immigrant opposition to communism in, you know, in the old degenerate and deformed Russian and Eastern European formations. So all this is mixed together. And it's not just the labor movement, but the the left has been incapable in some senses of addressing this and galvanizing people in an oppositional course, because an oppositional course to the way the capitalist states have handled the pandemic is absolutely fundamental at this point. And an oppositional stance just in this particular instance, of, of, as we've been talking about, about how various layers of the state and its repressive arm, which one would have thought would have been able to keep a protest like this from happening in Ottawa for a variety of reasons. You know, they didn't. But in the absence of that, a number of people perhaps gravitate to a leadership that they wouldn't necessarily adhere to hook, line and sinker. You know, and, and there's all kinds of weird stuff floating around. There's the QAnon and conspiracy theories. There was one guy I interviewed on television who was at the, the downtown, who was a protester downtown, who insisted that Justin Trudeau was the son of Fidel Castro. I mean, this is serious, so, of course. I laugh, but it's very serious because we have the same kind of disinformation, not just here, but around the world, as you're seeing this. And I guess this raises the question. 
you know, about the kind of, I guess, where the Canadian electorate is. And here in the United States, it was pretty shocking to see what kind of substantial support there was for the Trump style politics, because it went way beyond just appealing to working class pain, for example, or to people being left behind by the Democrats, you know, because it's a neoliberal corporatist party with a certainly a more progressive base, but has never done anything to accept pay lip service to working class interests. And maybe you could say, because in Canada, you have a liberal party, but you also have the NDP, which is a bona fide social democratic party. We don't have that in the United States. We've got this split within the Democratic Party. So is it the case that there's uh, this substantial base in Canada that's just fed up with, say, the liberals and perhaps the NDP and is now throwing in with this kind of politics? Do we know? Well, there is a big question mark over that, of course. Mike. Instinct and my sort of my own assessment is that yes, there is a layer of Canadian society that is fed up with the politics as usual and of capitalism's ongoing and seemingly never ending crises. However, as that layer of discontent is developing, the point to come back to it the leadership that we would like to see there, a labor left leadership that is able to actually explain you know, rationally what's going on and develop a rational programmatic course of responses to this is not there. It is not there. And while the NDP is a social democratic party, it is definitely not there either. It is not that voice in my view. And a reflection of that would be actually the current situation, which has moved into a different phase. Trudeau has declared the Emergency Act, which gives the state really unprecedented powers. The question then becomes, does one support that in this instant or not? And that is where it's a very messy situation, (laughs) because the opponents of the Emergency Act are the conservatives and the right wing, the far right. But that does not mean that the left shouldn't be opposing it to, because they didn't need the Emergency Act to actually stop this freedom convoy. They didn't need the Emergency Act to do virtually everything that they're doing now. The real basis for the things that the Emergency Act has done that couldn't have been done outside of it are, one, it has allowed the state to essentially commandeer tow trucks. You see, when they wanted to tow some trucks earlier, the trucking company said, no, 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 no. We're not getting involved in this. Either because they had, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me that these towing companies are aligned with a lot of this, this, the politics of this freedom convoy. But also they know that if they do this, they're going to pay an extreme price in terms of the harassment of people has been phenomenal. And the resistance to people who have, you know, basically tried to thwart these truckers. There was an Asian woman who got an injunction to stop the horn blowing. She alone, one 21-year-old Asian woman in downtown Ottawa, sought and secured an injunction. The harassment of her by this trucker's convoy has been incredible. So that's one thing that this emergency act does. They can commandeer, basically, they'll be paid, but they're told you have to tow that truck. And have they have they begun to tow the trucks? Yes, they've towed fifty vehicles. Not just many trucks are leaving on their own accord. Let's also point out that although this has gained international attention, you're talking about four hundred vehicles that clogged the city. <laughs> And a protest that probably at its core was certainly no more than a thousand. And at some points was down to a couple of hundred. So it may garner some sympathies that one could consider mass, but it's not at its core a mass movement. Just one other thing about the powers, the banking powers that this Mm. emergency act, it allows any crowdfunding source to be scrutinized by the banks and any 
individual or corporate bank account that has been used in any way to support a protest to be seized and frozen. So what you've got to understand is what the Emergency Act does is allow, and it doesn't designate what kind of protest. Any protest can be subject to the powers of the state incursion. That means that there are native protests going on in northern British Columbia right now to stop a pipeline on indigenous lands. That If you or I sent them through a crowdfunding source money to support their just cause, our bank accounts could be frozen. And this is really important. So, So this is what's changed since I wrote the article. The left cannot support the kind of emergency powers that the liberal state in Canada has now essentially implemented. And yet we find ourselves on the same podium of resistance in some ways as the conservative party and the alt-right. Now that's, it's a very messy situation, but you know, you, in my view, you can't support an emergency act and you have to say, we could have stopped, this could have been stopped by the laws that exist already. Uh, I was just going to ask, is it going to be over? Is it going to peter out? Are they going to just remove them all? (laughs) It's going to take a while. I do think they're mopping up now. But what was interesting was today when I kind of looked at it briefly, the TV before coming on with you, the total arrest had been about 170. I'd say there's there's no more than 100 hardcore protesters left. They're channeling them away from the parliament buildings into cul-de-sacs and, and then they're arresting them. Although, again, from demonstrations you and I have been on, even in this more aggressive and there's thousands of cops there now i mean there's cops from all over ontario the ontario provincial police the mounties they've got them decked out in the usual you know military hardcore garb still it's really it's slow and methodical in terms of what the cops are doing it's not vicious even though under this emergency act it's been declared that you know you're in violation if you're in this area Every hour, the cops issue a public statement that, you know, if you're in this area, you will be arrested. But they are told they can just walk away anytime. And still at 3.30, there were trucks that were pulling out and leaving. And, you know, the cops were ushering them through. Now, they were taking their license plate downs because they probably all got lots of tickets because they did issue some tickets. The other thing was that people... These people have brought their children to these protests. And so does that mean the kids are like, these are Canadian truckers who have taken their kids out of school or they're not in school? Not even some truckers, but some not truckers. You know, again, there's lots of people in there that aren't truckers. Yeah, their kids have been, some of them have been there either living in hotel rooms adjacent to the area and then coming in to protest and playing in the bouncy castle and doing various things. You know, I saw one when they started making the arrests. It was one guy who got arrested and clearly his wife was then being escorted by the cops with her three children. One of whom was a little girl, maybe seven, had her sign and was holding it up in her face because she didn't want her face to be on television. And the kids were crying. Now, my guess is they arrested the father and they told the mother, OK, we're just going to escort you out of the area. The Children's Aid Society did issue a statement that. If parents were arrested and and A, said you should not bring your children here. B, if you insist on defying that advice, you should make arrangements for your children to be looked after. If you don't do that, the Children's Aid Society is going to have to take your children. And we will do our best to reunite families as soon as possible. So there was an attempt on the part of the state and the CSA to kind of coordinate things. But For instance, yesterday, they were building snow barricades. I mean, you know, like that's going to stop the cops. And they have these huge armored vehicles, you know, that kind of. So they're building snow barricades. And there was a a mother with a stroller behind the snow barricade. I mean, the young child couldn't have been more than two. It's cold. Oh, it's freezing cold. And we had a huge snow dump. So it's been pretty outrageous. I mean, I took my daughter in a little 
snugly packs to all kinds of demonstrations, but I didn't <laughs> take her to anywhere. I thought there was a chance I was going to get arrested. Exactly. Yeah. So they've been using the kids as shields. There's no question of that. Um, wow. That and the claim that there may be weapons in some of these trucks has what been the excuse that the cops used that they have let it go on so long. So. Interesting. Well, what you, you bring up so many issues, and of course, we don't have a ton of time left, but I want to just ask you a few things, because as you were talking about this movement, you know, and about the opposition to, say, the state doing, in this case, the Emergency Act. But before that, I think there was some comparison, perhaps, with the Gilets Jaunes or the Yellow Vest movement in France. And you said that at no time was this a mass movement, but of not mass movements, but small movements have a big influence and and truckers have had, you know, thinking all the way back to the role of the truckers during popular unity, which was, you know, a right wing protest. And so, whereas I think you're absolutely right to talk about how it's impossible to support the strong state measures that will be used to repress the left even more than the right. And whereas they were very soft and somewhat welcomed the truckers convoy, they're very swift in their repression of the left or native or an indigenous protest along pipelines and everywhere else. And of course, the implications are grave everywhere. But on the other issues that they're talking about, the freedom, you know, not to have any concern about public health, for example, there I stand with the government on that. You know, I think, you know, this is a pandemic that only begins to get resolved when everybody's vaccinated and when you can prevent more variants from coming up. So very much a mixed bag. And I guess I want you to at least comment on the mixed political consciousness that develops out of this because that has been exacerbated by the conditions that we've all lived in everywhere because of the pandemic. Yeah, it's, a, it's an excellent point. It's, it really is about the discussion about freedom. There's a fundamental difference between those who are arguing, as is this trucker's convoy, that we want the freedom to do what we want to be able to do, no matter the circumstances. And of course, as a leftist and as a human being in the middle of a pandemic, you know, this seems to me entirely the wrong approach. And I'm, I'm with you that we need various mandates around public health. However, Again, it comes back to, to my problem, my earlier point about the lack of a left and working class leadership that would actually voice, you know, what we really do need. So, for instance, although one, you, you know, you say you stand with the government and their mandates. Yes. But we can't stand with how capitalism and its states have handled this pandemic. So, for instance, One fundamental issue is, yes, everybody needs to be vaccinated, but we need to vaccinate the developing world, too, which is not going to happen as long as big pharma controls, you know, the vaccines and how they get distributed. You know, in Canada, 85 percent of the population is vaccinated now. And by the way, 85 to 95 percent of truckers are vaccinated. (laughs) But we are not going to stop mutations of the virus from crossing borders, which are permeable to this kind of thing. When, you know, South Africa is, I don't know what the figure is, but 20% vaccinated or Nigeria is 12% vaccinated or whatever it is. It's just, we are not going to defeat this virus in that way, but we need to listen to science obviously and not, you know, QAnon nonsense and not and, and there are people in the in this convoy who who wanted to bring the government heads to uh, criminal charges because they were killing people by enforcing you know vaccination mandates. I mean that kind of nonsense is out there. It's out there more in the U.S., but it's here in Canada too. And so, you know, the awkward reality that we face is that in order to challenge the state's lack of real attention and various states, you know, globally, lack of attention to how to actually fight this virus needs to be a part and parcel of educating people about the necessity of taking precautions, following public health measures, listening to the science and not having it also. The real issue is 
and this started in, I'd say, in America in a big way, is the partisan politicization of public health issues and the making of it into this political football. And that got kicked across the border. And here we are in Canada facing the same kind of thing. Well, we've run out of time and there's so much more, of course, to discuss. I guess we'll have to leave it for our discussion of your book that's just out, Brian Palmer, and that is the uh, book that is called James Cannon and the Emergence of Trotskyism in the U.S. from 1928 to 38. I don't bring that up just frivolously, but because that really is at the heart of the beginning of the labor movement of the 1930s. And it's such a great tale of, you know, how the left and the labor movement converged in this period or not. And there's just so much in it. So having now promoted your book while talking about the uh, Canadian truckers, which is not yet completely over, and we'll have to see, you know, what will happen. I should just tell the listeners that you can read Brian's article called Canada's Alt-Right Freedom Rage. It's published on a site called The Bullet, uh, the socialistproject.ca. And you can find it there. Is there is that the easiest way for me to direct people to it, Brian? That or the Verso blog. Oh, the Verso blog, of course. It's on the Verso blog. And I think it's been put up on uh, Solidarity, which is for some on the U.S. will see that. Perfect. Well, I want to thank you for joining us and bringing a lot of light to this issue that's very confusing. And of course, also giving us a panorama of Canadian politics as well. And as I said, Brian is a preeminent and prolific Canadian labor, a historian of labor and the left. He's also a uh, emeritus professor at Trent University in Ontario and the author of many, many books, the latest of which just came out. And that's called James Canada and the Emergence of Trotskyism in the U.S. And of course, James Cannon, we will find out in a later interview just who he was. But Brian, thanks for joining us today on Jacobin Radio. Well, thank you. Thanks for, for this and for the show you do. Thanks very much. Thanks so much.